How's it going, Tristan? It's going all right. Going all right. Cool. Yeah, well, I think before we uh, first start recording, you said that uh, you're getting a bunch of rain, uh, maybe at an unserendipitous time. So, <laughs> um, we're in the final stages of a multi-year home renovation, and the very last, uh, the last thing that we have to do is get the gutters installed. And so, this rainstorm came uh, just a couple days too early for that. Hmm. Well. That sucks. Hopefully, you get your gutters on soon. So, <laughs> I know how that is. Actually, happened to me. I uh, we uh, were doing a home renovation, and the uh, um, for some reason the house didn't have gutters. I don't know why they didn't have them installed, but it was huh. that was pretty awesome. Yeah, we had a <laughs> and uh, here we are. So, yeah, I can completely empathize. Well, hope that gets sorted. We could out spend soon. the next forty five minutes talking about uh, the trials and tribulations of uh, re- home renovation, <laughs> especially home renovation when you have. Uh, two little kids and have to live in the house while it's going on. It's, it's, it's always a process. Oh my God. How long have you lived there? Uh, about three years. And okay. it's been, been uh, being worked on for basically that, that entire, entire period. I went through exactly the same thing. <laughs> we have this, uh, this duplex that we uh, renovated and it was about that long and two kids and we were living huh. in the basement for a bit. Yeah. Like living, like yep. cooking on an air, air fryer. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> That's that's mm-hmm. that's interesting, but you're uh, but you're running a company for, uh, amidst all this chaos, and so I, I yeah. I'm very curious how you do that. I was writing a book while I was uh, renovating, and that was like the worst thing ever in running a company. But uh, you're operating at a different level. I mean, actually, how does that work? I don't, I don't know if there's an answer. I think that um, maybe I've tried to put boundaries around uh, what time is is work time and what time is is home time. You know, the, the, if you're not careful. Uh, a job like this can can be a hundred percent of every waking hour of your of your day, um, and I'm just honestly not in a position where I can allow that to happen. Whether that's right. you know, yeah, a, a million obligation out, it's outside of outside of work. So I I try to to bookend it, and and certainly I I break those rules when you know there's there's like a lot a lot going on um, at work, but but I try to be pretty good about sticking to them. Really interesting. It's, it's one of those things where I think like right now, um, kids are out of school. I don't know how old your kids are, but it's, it's one of the challenges. Three and five. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's, that, that's a, that's an age two where they're uh, like the, the uh, terrifying threes and then the five-year-olds uh, getting autonomy there too. So it's like, I think uh, it's fun. I think the, the difference fun. between two and four and three and five is, is uh, worlds apart. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with them right now. That's super cool. Are you doing the, the renovations yourself or are you? Uh, no, no, no. Come on. <laughs> I mean, like I, if I were unemployed, then yeah, I that would be a lot of fun and I would, I would love that, but it, it's, it's hard enough just to manage the process and not do it myself. Yeah, it is a process. That's interesting. Yeah, well, more power to you. It's I, I can empathize with your situation. It's uh, it'll get better. someday you'll have a house, um, and then um, <laughs> you'll, you'll get. Hey, thanks for the for, for the <laughs> words of optimism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome um well cool I, I don't think you need much of an introduction i think we'll just jump right into it i mean uh you, you know dbt um i don't think needs much of an introduction either um but, but some of the things i've been curious about is you know kind of we just talked about kind of balancing work-life balance um you know in the midst of living in the, the uh um you know a, a renovation project um 
but along those lines, I mean, how do you balance, uh, you know, community versus, mm. you know, uh, a startup? I mean, I think that's, um, maybe kind of a, a, is it a similar tension or how, how do you, how do you think about that? That's a, that's a really interesting framing. I've never, I've never drawn those, those parallels before. I, I do think that, um, I do think that the, the core thing that I have to do in my job is, is balance competing tensions. Mm. Um, and, and yes, like, uh, community versus commercial is, is one of them. I think that in an ideal world, um, the, the, the community is benefited by our commercial success because hopefully uh, we are continuing to be good stewards of the community and of the actual open source code base. Um, and that our success will only lead to more acceleration in terms of our ability to grow the community and, and to, to improve the, the actual code. Um, there are certainly a million ways that that can, uh, that can, break down. Um, and, uh, there's, uh, I think better and worse examples of, of how this has, has gone over the years. Um, I, uh, but, but ultimately that's only like one of the many kind of competing tensions that exist inside of Mm -hmm. any growth stage company, you know, uh, you have all of the classic, um, um, how do you get the different uh, teams and leaders at at the company to uh, be aligned around a cohesive vision and uh, make sure that everybody's uh, working in in the same direction. Which is like, despite uh, e- even in an environment like ours, where I think everyone truly has the the best intentions and the the uh, you know has great personal relationships, um, it it is hard to keep a group of uh, you know almost four hundred people. Uh, rowing in the same direction. So I, I frequently find that um, the thing that I'm spending most of my time on is, is uh, trying to create and communicate um, shared vision, whether that's internally or externally. I don't know how good I am at that. I think that, that um, I think I certainly could, could, uh, and, and continuing to learn and continue to, to do better on that. That's really interesting because, I mean, based upon uh, sort of the origins, right, where, where Fishtown was more of a consulting company to, to where you are now, I can imagine that um, you, you talk about those comp- competing tensions. Uh, I can imagine personally, probably for you, that, that's, that's been a, a big um, growth for you. and, um, and learning Absolutely. Right? I, d- I did not set out with the, um, with the goal to run a large company or uh, to, to go public or to, you know, have some you know, outsized monetary gain. Um, I, I was curious about uh, a new set of technologies that were becoming um, more used by a set of early adopters, the technologies that we've now come to know as the modern data stack. Um, it has been, it has been a learning experience for me uh, to, to, you know, kind of steward this process Um but talking about tensions, that's one of the, the biggest that we have managed um, in in our journey as a company is you know, become transitioning from being a 
consulting business to being a software business. And um, that, that was, you know, has probably been a multi-year journey. And I think we're um, finally coming through the, the other sides of that. Um, but, but it is, uh, it, you know, I, I, I got an MBA, uh, you know, 10 plus years ago. And the, the thing that, uh, I, I had a, there was a class that I think all MBAs are forced to take called something like organizational behavior. And, uh, the, the thing that this professor said was, um, all of you care so much about your finance classes and your strategy classes. And these are like the, the things that MBA students are always the most interested in. But in a decade from now, you're going to come back to me and you're going to say organizational behavior is like, is everything. Um, and, and I found myself thinking about that a lot. Um, the, the hard parts are all about, um, you know, taking people on a journey from where you're at today to where you need to go because the, it, it impacts so many different people in so many different ways. When you make a change in direction, like we used to make our money from consulting and now we will make it from software. This seems to be one of the big tensions too with consulting companies. Cause I mean, I, I ran a consulting company, you, you ran one and mm-hmm. there's always a tension where the, the, the cash flows, um, you know, and then the, the money's easier in consulting short term, right? I mean, that's, you get paid mm-hmm. and you know, money's in your bank account and that's great. Um, you're also trading time for dollars, which totally sucks. And so every consultant I know is always trying to find like that next thing where, you know, they want to, you know, reach that escape velocity where they don't have to do consulting anymore, but it's so hard. It's so mm. hard, as you know. I think you're probably one of the only um, people I've met that's actually managed to um, escape from that. But it's all. But I think you're you're absolutely right, though, because I think the, a lot of the time, consulting companies want to focus on quote the product that's going to get them to the next level, but they don't consider the organizational dynamics because um, these are diametrically opposed um, mandates, almost right. Um, yeah. I don't know how how did you, uh, you know, mentally and I, I guess culturally, like what were some of the things that you um, managed to identify and overcome during that transition? Um, I mean, that's a question that could fill an entire podcast episode by itself, but maybe I'll I'll just start by saying that um, you, you have to be upfront with the people on the team that there is a change in direction. And then you have to be open to the idea that, not everyone's going to be excited about that change in direction. Um, so it, it felt very exciting to me for us back in 2019 to make a, a transition from being a consulting business to a software business. But um, I think I was, and you know, I, I had in my brain, all of the, the things that come with uh, having a software business, you know, you, you, like you said, consulting is a very hard business model. You, you like uh, are only as good as the last, you know, customer that you've closed. And uh, it's, it's just a very, very operationally challenging business to be in. Whereas if you can build a piece of IP that uh, has, has recurring value over time, it's, it, it's a, I think ultimately it's like a stronger strategic position to be in, but it's very hard to create that in the first place. Um, but I, what I, failed to to anticipate was um that there were 
several folks on our team, and we didn't have a big team, it was maybe 15 or 18 people at the time, um, but there were several folks on our team that they had joined to be a part of what was at the time probably the the most innovative little data consulting business in um, in in the like startup ecosystem, and they that, that was the role in their career journeys that we were meant to to play, um, and so we we probably turned over about a third of the team in the year after that decision, and it was not you know. It was not out of some kind of uh, deep dissatisfaction or, you know, oh, you made the wrong decision. It was simply like uh, I came here for reason X and now we are company Y and we can't supply reason X. Um, and and that that's okay and it's healthy and the, I still have good relationships with those people. But, but I, I didn't anticipate it, it very effectively. That was a miss on my part. It happens, but I mean, this is part of growing though. Right. So, (laughs) but yeah, it's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you you built a community and there's competing tension again, but with the, uh, the commercial aspect, right. I mean, well, the community was, the community started right around the same time that the consulting business started. So the reason, the reason that we became a software company was that the DBT, which, you know, if the first commit was in March of 2016, um, and then the DBT community, which was started a couple months after that, um, right. really, really took off. And so they, they continued to develop for about three and a half years while we made our, you know, our, our commercial business was, was consulting. And so by the time we even like were a, you know, quote unquote software company, uh, DBT already had about a thousand companies using it in production and then something like, 4,000 people in, in the community and, and both were growing at a rapid clip. You know, as, um, as CEO of, of, um, you know, DBT, um, labs and what role do you, do you still have in terms of driving the direction of the community and, um, the company? Cause I can, I can imagine these are also competing tensions. This is probably the theme of the show is competing tensions, but it's like, how do you, <laughs> how do you balance the, uh, um, you know, the, the, I mean, cause I, 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 I'm guessing you, you probably had a hand in, in the early genesis of the community. Um, and you had, did you have a vision for, for the community and, and what you wanted it to become, or did you kind of let it grow organically? And, um, a little both. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to your like more current day question in a second, but, but yeah. I, I just, uh, I was a longtime data practitioner and I, was always working at software companies and I was very aware of how software people solved problems when they didn't know the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Either they turned to uh, their, their compatriot next to them and they did a pairing session or whatever, or they turned to online communities, whether that's stack overflow or, you know, uh, a more specific uh, targeted community and and they were able to pretty effectively get answers from these two different sources and um, and I felt like I had never had either of these sources like often there's just not that many data people at 
certainly data people who like know about a certain topic um, at, a, at a given company and, and data communities back in 2015 were just say few and far between. Right. Um, and, and so I wanted just very selfishly, I wanted more of a community to kind of support me in doing the work that I was doing. And so the way that I showed up in the DBT community in the early days, and, and by the way, it was originally called analyst collective. That was, yeah, it was, I mean, the fact that you didn't know this is uh, not at all surprising that we changed the name a long time ago, but it's just like we had branding and everything for a community called analyst collective. And then it turned out that, uh, you know, everybody cohered around DBT. Um, but, yeah. So that was the problem that I was originally trying to solve. Um, I don't know if you, wow. I didn't realize yeah. that. It's interesting. It's true though. At that time, there was a dearth of uh, communities in the data world. It was, it was super fragmented. You had local user groups maybe, um, but more, you know, at least locally where I am in Salt Lake city, for example, I, I started, uh, you know, co-founded the, uh, Python meetup back in 2013 yep. or something like that. It's just exactly but, the kind of community that like people get their professional development from and their, their like sense of meaning and yeah, it's that yeah. kind of stuff is so valuable. It's super valuable. But I noticed around 20, was it 2014 or something like that? I started giving talks on machine learning, but because until then Python was all about web development and at least where we are. Yep. Right. And then all of a sudden all the talks were about data because it's about the time data science was cool. Then deep learning came out. Then all of a sudden everyone's, you know, um, you know, deep into Python for, for data. And that's really where it took off to the point where like no talks were about web or anything except data for mm -hmm. the longest time. Right. But, but it was really hard. There weren't like data, like, especially for analysts at that time, there weren't communities. I, I can tell you, cause I, I was yeah. looking around and I, the fact I didn't hear of analyst collective is not surprising at all. Cause it was in, yeah. incredibly balkanized. Like, um, if you were in certain geographies, chance of finding people was just probably not going to happen. So, yeah. but people rally yeah. around technologies, people rally, you know, so I think to your point, that's probably where it got stronger. I think you're right. And I don't, I don't exactly know why that's true. I'm not sure that mm. it's necessarily a good thing. Um, I mean, right. in, in software engineering, a lot of the communities cohere around languages, um, which is, which is maybe more appropriate, but in, in data, they tend to cohere around like products, which is, I think maybe a little bit less, less good. Um, DBT is like a hybrid between a, product in a language. Um, but, but you know, the, the, probably still the biggest and most successful community for data analysts is the Tableau community, um, oh, yeah. which, which is, you know, great. And there's a lot of people who've benefited tremendously from, from the Tableau community. Um, it's just, it's different, uh, having a community around something like Tableau versus something like Python. Uh, one more decentralized for sure than the other ones, you know, kind of controlled. Yep. Then there were other groups too, like DEMA, uh, Data Management Association. But again, that was kind of more, I would think of a, a kind of a quasi um, entity, you know, sort of controlling the narrative. They have their own board mm -hmm. and stuff. So it's like, you know, um, yeah, what else do you have? Like TDAN and uh, 
TDW organizations like that that were, but again, yeah. I think these are, these are a lot more commercial type interests, right? There wasn't like a truly like, you know, grassroots, um, you know, data communities, uh, especially back then. Nowadays, it, it seems like there's, you know, Slack communities for, for any sure. nuance that you yeah. possibly want. <laughs> so, but back, back Yeah, then, I have a one in, one out policy on my Slack sidebar. It's like, if I'm going to join another Slack community, I'm going to leave. Interesting. Leave one. Um, but, okay, so y- you asked earlier, uh, how, how do I help to drive community at this stage? And And so a part of that is like, figuring out our, you know, things like our Slack content moderation rules, uh, figuring out how the people that we have that work at DBT labs spend their time when, as it relates to community. Um, so those are kind of like standard and maybe not that interesting answers. Um, but I, I think that the main way that I continue to, to play a role here is, in naming problems mm. and uh, and committing to what parts of the solutions we are going to um, we are going to help help uh, create in the world. Um, so, so uh, a couple of years ago, I um, went on record as saying that uh, the fact that there was no modern data stack semantic layer was a problem. And I talked a lot about this and the structural issues with it. And, and we have been um, working on that for the ensuing uh, something like year and a half. And, um, you know, recently acquired a company called transform that was real technology leader in the space. And um, so th- there's, you know, we could, we could talk more about that if that's interesting. The, the problem that I'm, very focused on naming this year is the uh, problem of complexity that arises from a reduction in friction. Um, and the, the, you know, there's, this is, this is a big topic, but um, I think that is the, the short version is um, the modern data stack, like many technologies that have come before it, um, has made a certain thing much, much, much easier. And it turns out that when you have a complex system and you reduce the friction in a key part of it, well, there's going to be a lot more stuff that gets output by this, by this process. Um, and that's not in and of itself a bad thing, but it does create like a downstream problem to solve, which is the management of that, you know, increased stuff. Um, and the, the folks that I, I like couldn't fully wrap my head around this, you know, sometimes I'm too close to the, the world, the way it is today that, that, that like TBT has helped to create. Um, and I have a hard time, you know, seeing the forest for the trees, but I, I spoke to a couple of folks who have been, through prior waves of, of this happening. One is uh, Bob Muglia, who, uh, yes, he uh, is critical at, at Snowflake, but also he was, uh, you know, a senior person at Microsoft during the explosion yeah. of the PC era. And the PC era is like uh, exactly this this thing happening. And then I talked to, talked to some folks who were early at VMware 
um, who had this exact same dynamic, they had a term for it. They called it VM sprawl. People would spin up VMs, run workloads on them, and then they maybe that person would leave the company. No one would know what workload this VM was running. They'd be afraid to kill it. And so it was just like this VM that would just like live forever. Uh, and, and so in both of these instances, uh, Microsoft and the Microsoft ecosystem and then VMware had like helped to, uh, govern the, the, the new problem that had been created by this like huge technology unlock. Um, but, but in, in the process of, of innovation, like it's, it's never totally straight. You know, like it's, it's a bumpy path and you run into new problems and then you, you solve them. Interesting. Can you give me some examples of, um, growing complexity, uh, due to the yeah. uh, modern data stack. So when I was, uh, first using DBT to, you know, implement the modern data stack across, you know, series a through C VC funded startups, um, a lot of models was, I don't know, 150, 250. I mean, I think my, biggest client in the like 2017, 2018 time period had 400 data, data models, DBT data transformations. Um, and that, that felt like a lot. Um, but the, the community has now been using DBT for much longer and there are much uh, larger organizations today using DBT than, than there were in the early days. And so a large DBT project is no longer, you know, a dozen users and, you know, four or 500 models. It is 500 or a thousand committers and, you know, two to 10,000 data models. And, and, we have run into, I think the largest DBT project that I'm aware of has 39,000 data models today. What? So it's, it's a lot. And, um, that is not, you know, that is not an in and of itself a problem. That's like saying, Oh, we write too much software code today. It's like, nobody thinks that, we write too much software code. Like we, we need to write as much code as is required to create the applications that we need right. to exist. Um, the, the, the problem with, uh, scale is as you, as you first experience this scale as a, as a community, you have to say like, okay, how, how well is this working and what parts of it are working and what parts aren't working. And then, you know, like Python, you might, we were talking about Python before I'm not, uh, not deeply experienced in like developing Python at scale, but one of the things that the community went through was adding a, a type system to the, to the language and uh, it's roots as a language, like didn't really seem to need that. But then at a certain point users were saying like, this is a big problem for me. I need to, to add this functionality. And um, with, with DBT, the, one of the problems around uh, 
scaling is a recognition that uh, you need to separate large DBT code bases into many discrete parts and allow individual teams to own their part of the code base. And this is in software engineering, you could call it service-oriented architecture, microservices or two-pizza teams or whatever. Um, but but in software, we've been doing this for, you know, two decades or something like that. Um, but But again, in data, like we have been less mature for, you know, long, long periods. And so DBT did not anticipate in its original design, did not anticipate 10,000 models in a, in a DBT project. And so we need the constructs to enable you to kind of decompose your, your big DBT code base into many different parts and then allow those parts to like kind of be reintegrated with one another using, you know, well-defined interfaces that are mature and reliable. Interesting. So what would happen if, if you take, I'm a fan of taking the, uh, the logical extremes of, of the situation. So mm. if you had, mm-hmm. um, say a million, uh, DBT models in an organization, what would happen? Or say 2 million, why not? Uh, just keep scaling it up. I mean, yeah. at, at what point does, at what, what starts breaking? Right. And, and, and why? Well, I can tell you exactly, you know, the experience of at 10,000. I don't, my, my guess is that it, a million, uh, it, it probably looks like just a worse version of 10,000. Sure. <laughs> um, but the, there's a, there's a couple of problems. One is like very, very, uh, obvious and, and basic, but, um, if you try to um, cram all 10,000 of those models into a single DBT project and use typical DBT constructs like DBT build, DBT docs, um, the, it, from a performance perspective, it just doesn't actually perform that well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain decisions that have led to the core user experience that um, that people love that don't operate as well at that kind of scale. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and things like, you know, DBT docs, uh, made some design decisions like, um, I'm just going to take the JSON object that DBT produces with all the catalog information in it. I'm just going to load it into browser memory and it's going to be really snappy and, uh, well, when when that object gets big enough, that that solution doesn't really scale. Um, so th- these are the kind of like you know first order concerns. But then the, the second order concerns are, I think, more interesting and more. Uh, they require like more deep engagement with the design problems in order to to get them right. And uh, the so the problem right now is you have you have two choices when you scale up your, your models, you can either keep things in the same project um, or you can split them out into multiple projects. And when they're in the same project, you have problems like um, either like we were just talking about things take a long time or um, because the surface area inside of this project gets bigger and bigger and bigger. um, You have many different people collaborating in there 
it becomes very hard to get a, a good pull request review mm. um, because nobody understands the full surface area of the code base. And so when you go and make changes, no one's really confident that these changes are, are really correct. Um, it becomes very challenging to um, construct a clean DAG. So in software engineering, there's this concept of uh, access levels. So public, private, protected. One of the core things of software engineering is defining what parts of your code other people should be reading and what parts are kind of abstracted away from them. They don't need to care about that. DBT doesn't really have that. Or up until very recently, you know, we've been working on this for this this year so far. Up until recently, DBT didn't have that concept. And so what happened when a lot of people were working together inside of a DBT DAG, people would just kind of like reference each other's stuff and you would look at the DAG and it would end up looking like a, a bowl of spaghetti. And so what you what you need is you need much clearer definitions of hey, I'm the finance data team. I am going to define 10 outputs that anybody at the organization can read from, whether you're doing a reporting on top of them or whether you're doing downstream data modeling. And those 10, uh, those 10 outputs, I'm going to support them incredibly well. They're going to be stable, contracted. But then I'm going to have 100, 200, 1,000 models upstream from them that whatever goes on in there, that's my business. And that's not really my contract with, with you external party. Um, so we needed to give people the constructs to like create more mature architecture around. Cause otherwise, you know, you got spaghetti code, you got like unreliable uh, code because people didn't know how to like insist on, on quality around it. Um, but if you, if you separated things out into multiple dbt projects the other version was that things were too there was no way to get visibility into what other teams were doing and so you ended up with duplicative work that drove up uh snowflake costs and led to lower quality outputs you know different teams would calculate things differently which is kind of the whole thing we were trying to solve in the first place not not doing that so the answer is you need to be, be able to have both you need to be able to shrink the area of concern for a given team, but then you need to allow that team to have clean ways to, to plug into the work of other teams. Right. While also maintaining probably definitional integrity and everything else that matters at the end of the day with data. Cause one of the big problems I could definitely see is um, not just model sprawl, but, but um, you know, terminology and vocabulary and definitional sprawl yep. Yep. is not great when you're doing analytics. So that's interesting. hundred percent. And and you need to, maybe this is the same thing that shows up in, in software engineering. I, I am not uh, well-versed enough to, to know the answer to this, but what we found in data is that um, if you make it really easy to uh, rely on shared functionality, people will do it. But if you make it hard, people will just not do it. And then uh, they will end up, uh, you know, reinventing the wheel over here. You know, it can, it can be, make it hard from a 
product experience perspective, or if you make it hard from an organizational perspective, if the data team here uh, needs to access data from another team, but they have no real relationships with that team and don't have a lot of trust in the work that they output, then like they're, they're not going to do it. And the best product in the world can't make them do it. But I think, I don't know what, you, what you've seen, but I know through my experience, um, you know, working consulting, that's exactly where a lot of this, uh, the crux is, is the, the organizational behavior piece. We were talking about that earlier, the power yep. of organizational yep. behavior, right? And, and uh, I think kind of to your point where your professor was telling you, yeah, everyone wants to, to take the, uh, the finance classes. I think in a lot of cases, it's, as an industry, you want to, you know, um, whack everything over the head with technology. Um, yep. At the end of the day, the organizational problems are the ones that are typically going to sneak up on you. Um, I mean... How much of that are you are you trying to factor into to solving this um, this issue of complexity? So, I think we've done a pretty reasonable job over the years of um, of making making it clear that uh, the the that technology is not the only solution to any of these problems. Um, we wouldn't have a community if we didn't think that people right. were a critical component of, of the solution. Um, and we've tended to be reasonably opinionated about the way that this work should be done in the past. Um, you know, when the ETL to ELT paradigm shift happened, a lot of folks in the data transformation space wanted to keep a leg in both of those, uh, th- those worlds and, and, we just said like, no, that's like ELT is the way that this stuff is going to be done. And we're building a product for, for that world. Um, and, and that's just like one example. There's many, many places where we've been opinionated. Um, but so I, I think that right now our product and engineering teams are very hard at work in making sure that the constructs exist inside of DBT so that we can organize ourselves in the right way. And that's data contracts and uh, access levels and, and uh, versions and cross project refs and all of this stuff. But we need to, as this stuff continues to make its way out into the world, we, we have to also uh, catalyze a conversation around like, mm-hmm. how do you organize data teams? And I don't think there's one correct answer there, but I do think that there are probably some, um, really important principles that if you don't follow those principles, you're going to have a hard time. For sure. Yeah. One of one that comes to mind that I talk a lot about is Conway's law. Um, just sort of the, uh, it, it, the gravity that exists in organizations and, uh, how you ship your org chart. Yep, exactly. Right. It, it, yeah. Even you, you know, there, there's notions of like team topologies talks about reverse Conway's law, which is just, uh, you know, uh, organize yourself according to the architecture that you want. Um, mm-hmm. uh, easier said than done, I would imagine, in a lot of companies, especially when you get to the uh, scale where you have, um, you know, the, uh, what is it, 39,000 or whatever it was, the uh, sure. models yeah. at that point. It's like, yeah, uh, go go try it out. Um, but no, it, it's a, I think it's a good way of putting it is, is um, having a conversation around data teams and um, and these uh, discussions. I think this is a bit underrated. Um, I, I wouldn't say a bit, it's like vastly underrated. Uh, what, what I've noticed is the the, um, the challenges with with um, getting people to use uh, 
um, the tools properly, even in the, the way you're opinionated is, mm-hmm. is, 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 a, is a knowledge and educational thing, right? And it's, it's about also developing that culture of, of like, here's how you, you know, use this tool or whatnot. I mean, you can look at like, I don't know, Harley Davidson motorcycles is a really good example of like, I think a company that has a culture around their product. And it's just like, mm-hmm. here's how you're supposed to dress when you're on a Harley, right? Like, um, you know, it's, it's got, it's, it's almost its own meme, but the thing is, it's, it's kind of a self-reinforcing thing too, where people are like, yeah, yeah. it's mm-hmm. like, you can, you can tell you're part of our tribe. You can tell you're not. And I think, um, DBT more than a lot of other, um, you know, communities out there, I think has done a good job at, you know, at least having, um, built sort of a self-reinforcing culture around, um, you know, what it's doing. Could, could it, could it do more, uh, you know, to reduce the sprawl? I mean, so I don't know if this is, uh, at all interesting or useful, but I think that we have been reasonably successful at doing that at the practitioner level, people Mm -hmm. who are in the code doing the work every day. Um, and so when it comes to things that practitioners can set the agenda on, I think we've been pretty successful at driving that type of change. Um, a lot of times the org structure stuff is controlled by a different set of people. Mm -hmm. And especially in large organizations, those people are multiple levels away from the, the practitioners that we have historically had a great relationship with. And so you know, again, maybe this is not that interesting, but it's, it's like inside baseball. Um, but, but we are trying to develop the muscle around, um, how do we build relationships with, with those folks? Because we need them to join this party too, if we are really going to, to drive the next type of change that we want to see. I don't think, I think that's a fascinating topic that uh, deserves its own podcast, uh, but it's, it's that last mile problem. Right. I mean, because I, I think we're as, as a data, um, as a data community, you know, DBT more broadly, I think we're, we're good at um, speaking within our own echo chambers. Uh, what we're not mm-hmm. good at is, is talking to the business. I wrote an article on my Substack a, about a month or two ago where it was like, I, I wish when we talk about when we talk to the business, we just stop using the word data and just start talking about like, what are the problems that you want to solve? Speak their language. Because yeah, yeah. what I've known over the years, um, you know, is that if you're not a data person, you don't care about whatever the data person's selling you, you just want whatever they're doing to help you with your job and make you look awesome and stuff. Right. But it's, it's like, if you, if you approach it, like, you know, I'm, I'm writing a model file for you, right. Mm-hmm. To, to an on business user, just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, does that work in Excel, by the way? That's the other question. Um, but it's, but I, I think the approach that we're trying to take is, um, um, it, it could be better. Right. So to me, that that's the, this is the crux. This is like, we got 90% of the way there and the last 10%, this is like the hard last 10%. I think that, um, so there's this like, uh, don't, don't do anything as a company that quote unquote, doesn't make the beer taste better. Mm, Um, like if it's, if it's not a core competence, then why would you do it versus why wouldn't you just outsource it? And Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there was a, a real trend towards outsourcing software engineering in, in the early, maybe the entire 2000s for that was, a lot of yeah, shipping. Yeah. Offshoring. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I was a consultant at, at Deloitte at the time and did, you know, I was on the other side of that equation. Um, but, but increasingly 
companies of all sizes and, and, you know, digital natives and not are realizing that having software development competency internally is critical to their success. And they've had to invest themselves in the idea that having our own knowledge here will, will lead to better, better outcomes. And I still think that that, that is less, um, an idea that's less engaged with on the, on the data side. I think that um, certainly not all, but, but many large organizations still are uh, at a place that, that, um, you know, soft development was, you know, in the, in the 2000s. Uh, and there's a, there's a, you know, the mythical man month, you know, how, how do you, uh, we're just going to hire a lot of people and throw them at the problem. And, and, uh, it's, it's become very clear in software engineering that the way that you write code matters and the way you organize yourselves. And, and this is just now like pretty common knowledge in, in the field. And, and I think it'll get there in, in data too, but it'll be a process. It's a process. I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the other themes you've been talking about is just, um, we're borrowing a lot from software engineering, right? I mean, that's, yeah. One of the big macro themes in, in data really is that I'm a, if you want to look I'm at a one trick pony, <laughs> like every single problem, it's like, you know, how is this showing up for the community that I'm a part of? And has yeah. this shown up for software engineers before? Because not every time, but many times it, it has, and there's been good solutions. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean they paid the way, right? I mean, and you mentioned um, you know Mythical Man Month, right? I mean, the author also wrote uh, No Silver Bullet, right, and talked about mm-hmm. back then about how uh, just <laughs> every every time we think we found the uh, the answer to software engineering, it, it's it's elusive. But the thing is, that the you know software's managed to make great strides. I mean, great software's yep. being shipped all the time, and the results are, are there. I definitely agree that data will get there. It, it's, um, I mean, when I talk to Bill Inman, for example, right? I mean, he's been, I mean, he started writing code in 1960, I think. Uh, um, and gosh, and I, yeah, right. We were at, we actually had a DBT event in Denver, and he, I, me and him were uh, <laughs> kind of just uh, doing, a, you know, the, the Joe and Bill show. But uh, he asked the crowd, like, who, who was born in uh, 1960? Like, nobody, right? And he's like, so I got some perspective here. And he went on to say, you know, the, the, the data field is just very immature. I mean, accounting has been around for mm-hmm. like thousands of years in, in some way, shape or form. And um, other practices, uh, medicine and whatnot, have been around for a long time. But you know, data technology itself is relatively immature and data is even more immature than that. So it's just to be expected, right? But yeah, yeah. Um, so we can beat ourselves up. But I mean, the thing is, we can also like, you know, no, no, I, forward, so. I, I think it's, I think it's important to, recognize the gains we made in the past decade, which have been like really, truly massive. Anybody who is not happy with the state of the world right now should go back in time 10 years and, you know, mm-hmm. recognize how incredibly disempowering it was to operate at that, that moment in time. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's, it is going to be a multi-decade long journey and uh, it, that that's okay. We need to be self-critical and we need to be pointing towards, the future. That's awesome. Well, cool. I think it's a good, good uh, note to end the show on too. So it's, uh, I'm excited about the future. I, I, I get the sense that you are too. So this is, um, yeah. I am, I, I am, What's up? Um, no, I, I, I'm, I'm very excited about the future. I think that um, the, there have been some um, 
kind of initial innovations that kicked off the the modern data stack and that uh, we've seen a lot of kind of compounding effects that have gone on over the course of the past 10 years. The market size has gone way up. The level of sophistication of uh, products has gone up. Uh, vendors have uh, really now had time to build products that work and have, you know, people in the, in the industry have gotten an opportunity to try these products and engage with them. So like we're, we're uh, on an exponential growth curve as an industry. And I'm like very, very bullish on what the next, next few years look like there. That's awesome. Yeah. And you're leading it too. Right. So it, it's, it's gonna be interesting to be in the, the driver's seat to some extent on that too. So that's, that's cool. Um, thanks. Thanks for a, a great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Likewise, Tristan. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk to you. Talk to you later.